We'll take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, and we will begin formally studying this book today. I told you last week that we'll be diving into this text. I'm not sure how long it's going to take us, but I'm also not sure that we're in a hurry. So we're going to work our way through this amazing six-chapter book together over the coming months and year or more or so. So we'll see how the Lord directs us. Well, as is a custom of our study, I want to read you the text that we're going to be studying this morning, and then we'll dive in together. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, and I will read the content of our study today. Ephesians 1, verse 1. Paul, stop right there. It's going to take a little time to get through that word. Oh, what a wealth of treasure resides in the first word of the book of Ephesians. Paul. That's as far as we're going to get this morning. And full disclosure, it's going to take us at least one more week after today to get through this word. And then we'll get the fuller verse, as is the case with the context. Today we're going to see Paul come into the kingdom of God. And next week... We're going to see Paul come into the chains of jail. And we have to have both of those in our minds set very firmly to understand the theology that he unpacks in the book of Ephesians. Without the right context of its author, then so much of the mystery that he's going to be describing to us about the gospel, so much of the glories about the gospel will only be abstract and not personal without understanding the apostle Paul. Samuel Johnson said, no man was ever great by imitation. Ralph Waldo Emerson commented, imitation is suicide. And an anonymous proverb says, he who never walks except where he sees other men's tracks will make no discoveries. Stinging warnings against imitation. Compare that to these words from the lips and the pen of the Apostle Paul. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ, 1 Corinthians 1.11. Brethren, join in following my example, Philippians 3.17 says. Philippians 4.9, the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace shall be with you. 2 Thessalonians 3.9 We offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. Was Paul arrogant? A control freak? Self-centered? Conceited? What kind of man could say these things with genuine humility and divine authority? In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, Paul simply says, I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. Remember, too, that this was the same man who told the Ephesians through Timothy that he was the chief of all sinners. How do we put that in our mind, in our theological blenders, and get something that makes sense? Well, let's start answering the question this morning, who was Paul? Who is this man whose scripture calls us to imitate? The Apostle Paul is one of the most recognized figures in the Bible. 
He's one of the most dominant personalities in the New Testament. In fact, in the New Testament, he is described basically as the most dominant and important person except for Jesus. He is discussed, quoted, studied, debated, admired by countless. Robert Piccarelli says, except for the Lord himself, no other single figure has done so much for the Christian faith. It's quite a statement. Paul's ministry takes up over half of the book of Acts. His epistles dominate the New Testament. He wrote 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. He was born a Roman citizen, yet his Jewish heritage was elite, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a Messianic tribe. His Jewish heritage was more important to him than his Roman heritage, although he would leverage, as we'll see next week, his Roman heritage when he needed to. Unlike many of the Jews who've been scattered around during this first century, all about the world and had become assimilated into the Gentile way of life that surrounded them, Paul did not. He was a Jew of Jews. That's why he describes himself to the Philippians as, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm not not just an ethnic Jew, I'm a faithful practicing Jew. He studied under one of the most important scholars in Jewish history, Gamaliel, who encouraged patience early in Acts with the new way, Christianity, where Paul demanded action. Paul proved to be an outstanding student. He had a pronounced enthusiasm for the law of God and Jewish tradition. He was an expert in the Old Testament. And Jesus and the new Christians presented a threat to all that Paul held dear and believed to be true. His zeal for his Judaism found an easy outlet on the infant church. Paul's gifts, Paul's versatility are remarkable. He was an apostle, a preacher, a missionary, a debater, a theologian, a pastor, a spiritual father, and a brother. And although he spent three years personally with Jesus in the desert of Arabia, personal time with him, according to the book of Galatians, with the resurrected Jesus, some people are confused when they understand that he was not one of the 12 apostles. He wasn't one of the 12 disciples. He came afterwards. When you see his bravery, it's stunning. He proclaimed the gospel in hostile Jewish synagogues. He preached in the open Gentile marketplaces. He debated on the Areopagus of Athens. He evangelized before the intimidating council of Jerusalem that had condemned Jesus to death. He was often threatened with death if he would, would just, uh, unless he stopped preaching. He was beaten over and over for preaching the gospel, beaten so badly at Lystra, they left him for dead in a ditch outside the city. He stood for the gospel before Agrippa and Felix and Festus at Caesarea by the sea. We'll see that next week. He preached the gospel to Roman guards while in in jail, holding him at sword point. That'll have specific implications for us when we get to Ephesians 6. And he describes the believer's armor while being guarded by a Roman guard. In Acts 20, he is, uh, the Ephesian elders come to meet him uh, from my, at Miletus. And the Holy Spirit had told him what he revealed to them, that he, everywhere he would go, would face suffering and beatings and ultimately death because of his faithfulness to the gospel. And I love how Acts 17 describes Paul. 
as one of those who upsets the world. His own resume of his ministry is remarkable. At one point in defending himself to the Corinthians who had had demeaned him to just another teacher among the false teachers, he says, listen, I'm not like them. Let me tell you my spiritual resume. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23. Are they, the false teachers, servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, Five times I received from the Jews and 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep, floating around in the ocean. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, there is daily the daily pressure of me of concern for all the churches. What a resume. Now, real quick footnote that might needs to be cleared up from the very beginning. There's a little bit of a misunderstanding among many Christians about Paul's name. Why is he Paul and why was he Saul and what's the difference and how did that change? We'll see this morning, as we get into the book of Acts, that his original name, his Hebrew name was Saul. You may have heard something about his two names, Paul and Saul, that points to Saul as the persecutor of the church and Paul as the great apostle. But that's not how the story goes in the Bible. We know that God changed Abram's name to Abraham. He changed Sarai's name to Sarah. He changed Jacob's name to Israel. He changed Cephas's name to Peter. Good. And there's this oft-repeated legend that God changes Saul's name to Paul on the road to Damascus. Unfortunately, that's not what Acts chapter 9 says. As a spoiler, the Holy Spirit himself the third member of the Trinity continues to call him Saul all the way throughout the book of Acts. Acts chapter 13, verse 2, he calls him Saul. So for God the Spirit to call this man Saul four chapters after his conversion is telling. In fact, he's called Saul 11 more times after his conversion in the book of Acts, which seems a bit odd if Jesus changed his name for the, second, for the third person of the Trinity to keep calling him his old name. The word of God shifts from Saul to Paul in the book of Acts. Listen, when Paul takes his missionary journeys and his mission is to the Gentiles, he tells us that. We'll study that a little bit more next week. And so he takes on a Roman name, Paul, not going by his Jewish name, Saul, anymore. It's just simply a name. Acts 13, 9 tells us, but Saul, 
who is also called Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit. He kept going by both names until he died. One was his Jewish name, Saul. The other was his Greco-Roman name, Paul. This should not surprise us. Joseph was also called Barnabas in Acts 4.36. Simeon was called Niger in Acts 13.1. Thomas was also called Didymus in John 21.2. Lots of people had multiple names. So for the next year or so, we're going to hear the Apostle Paul instruct all of us on the glories of salvation in Jesus Christ. The obvious reference point for Saul or Paul, as we'll call him, the obvious reference point for his personal understanding of salvation would have been his own conversion experience. So for our study today, as we orient ourselves around this first word in Ephesians, Paul, I think it will serve us if we look at the details of his conversion. He speaks so much of his salvation, so much of the glories of salvation. We should be acquainted with what the Spirit of God has inspired for us to know about his salvation. Now, the book of Acts chronicles the beginnings of the church, as you know. And after an amazing start in chapter 2, where 3,000 people were converted, they got saved after one sermon. The atmosphere begins to look like the last week of Jesus' life hostile and threatening. By the time you reach chapter 8 of Acts, being a follower of Jesus Christ carried with it the possibility of a death sentence. Just let that sink in for a moment. If you were a Christian, that in these early days by Acts chapter 8 carried with it a death sentence. How do we know that? Stephen in Acts 7 was killed for being a Christian. As Stephen was thrown to the ground, the enraged men took off their outer coats, their their tunics, and laid them at the feet of a man named Saul of Tarsus, who would soon be the apostle Paul, and he watched over their coats with approval as they bashed Stephen to death with stones. The blood of the first Christian martyr likely splattered on Saul's toga. Then Acts chapter 9 opens with Saul still persecuting the church. But something happens in this chapter. (laughs) You can turn over to Acts 9 now. Something happens in Acts 9 that changed the course of the world, that changed the course of the Christian faith. F.F. Bruce says, No single event apart from the Christ event itself has proved so determinant for the course of Christian history as the conversion and commissioning of Paul. George Littleton says, The conversion uh, and apostleship of St. Paul alone, duly considered, was itself a demonstration sufficient to prove Christianity to be a divine revelation. In other words, the fact that Saul got saved is proof that it was real because he was so dramatically transformed. 
Now, a little head start. I'm going to give you a very brief outline at the very end of today, not at the very beginning. So I just want you to listen to the story. Listen to this narrative. We first meet the apostle Paul, or Saul, when the executioners who stoned Stephen laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul in Acts 7. He would tell the Corinthians at one point, for I am the least of the apostles, not fit to be an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. He never forgot that he was a persecutor of the church. I think he probably was haunted his whole life by Stephen's faith and courage, his glorious death, giving God praise and honor and faithfulness as he was stoned to death. Why why persecute the church, though? What's up with Saul? Why is he so mad at the church? Well, he told the Galatians why. In Galatians... um, uh, the, the, the letter where he is kind of the mini Romans where he talks about salvation so intimately he told them for you have heard of my former manner of Judaism how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and I tried to destroy it and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen being more extremely zealous for my ancestral faith that's Galatians 1 13 and 14 He says, I was after the zeal of God to persecute the church because I was convinced that true godliness was found in maintaining Judaism, not in this new Christian thing. He was advancing. He quickly demonstrated his natural leadership by pressing the persecution against the first Christians. His leadership of the persecution was officially sanctioned by the Jewish and religious officials in Acts 9-2. He talks about that in Acts 22.5 and Acts 26.9. He was officially given papers by the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem to persecute Christians even as far away as Damascus, 150 miles north, which is where he's going to head. One of the curiosities that I've never been able to kind of fully resolve in my mind is where was, if he was this embedded in in Judaism, if he was a student of Gamaliel, if he was this much of a student, where was he in the last week of Jesus' life? Perhaps he heard Jesus teach. We don't know. Perhaps he was at the crucifixion or the trial. We, we, we don't know. We're not told. It seems that we would be informed if that were the case. He may have been on a trip for all we know. It is interesting, though, he was alive and well during Jesus' lifetime. But for some reason, we don't know anything about any interaction he might have had. He put many of the new believers in prison, and when they were put to death, he applauded. Acts 26, verse 10 says that when they were tried and executed, his vote was one of the votes that led to their demise. As I mentioned, Paul told the Galatians he was motivated in his persecution by an extreme zeal for the traditions of his fathers. In other words, get this, he thought he was doing what was right. Just because we're passionate about doing what we think is right doesn't mean what we're doing 
is right. Saul's prostrating encounter, this fall on the ground encounter with the living glorified Jesus on the road to Damascus instantly terminated his passionate career as a persecutor and his desire to advance in Judaism. Now, just a little footnote, because I'm going to weave some of these details together. Paul's conversion, Saul's conversion, is recorded three times in the book of Acts. The first is in chapter 9, which Luke records in his narration. The second are his testimonies. Second and third testimonies that he, he gives are uh, in defense of his ministry before uh, a Jewish mob and the second before the key, Jewish king Agrippa up in Caesarea by the sea, Caesarea Mamertine. Those are in chapters 22 and in chapters 26. I'm going to weave some of those details into chapter 9 as we walk through it together. Now, let's explore this chapter, Acts chapter 9, and make some concluding observations at the end. So just enjoy this amazing story of the conversion of a person who was the most unlikely, would have been voted most unlikely to become a Christian in his generation. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing, which means he had been doing it previously, still breathing threats of murder against the disciples of the Lord. What that really means, breathing means as, as often as a person breathes, this was how often he was casting out threats against Christians. Anytime he talked, it was about bringing Christianity to a halt. Breathing threats and murder. That's how serious this was against the disciples of the Lord. Went to the high priest. He had a relationship with the high priest. That tells us that he was in the upper echelon of Jewish leadership. And he asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, 150 miles away, about a week's journey. So that if any be found belonging to, I love this, the way. That was the earliest designation of Christianity, the way. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. He, Paul goes and asks, Saul goes and asks for these letters, these official documentation, this credibility, so that if he found anyone belonging to Christianity the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem for trial and for execution. Luke includes men and women to show the heartless nature of Saul. Here is Saul. The Christian terrorist or terrorist against Christians. His job before he became a Christian was to do damage to Christians. Paul was so intense on his terrorist plots against Christians that he drew every breath from the threats and slaughter he harbored against them, his desire to bring them to death. Chuck Swindoll, Charles Swindoll, describes Paul like this. These are great words. Saul's blood is boiling. He is on a murderous rampage toward Damascus. He charged north out of Jerusalem with the fury of Alexander the Great sweeping across Persia and the determined resolve of William Sherman in a scorching march across Georgia. 
Saul was borderline out of control. His fury had intensified almost to the point of no return. Such bloodthirsty determination and blind hatred for the followers of Christ drove him hard toward his distant destination, Damascus, as I said, 150 miles north of Jerusalem. If you were a follower of Jesus living anywhere near Jerusalem, you would not want to hear Saul's knock at your door, end quote. So the high priest issues letters instructing the synagogues in Damascus in Syria to assist and extradite the men and women associated with the way Christians back to Jerusalem to face trial. They were Jewish traitors. At this point, Christianity is now under official religious attack. And the Roman government typically upheld such edicts by the Jews. And with these opening words in Acts 9, Christians are now officially outlaws. The Christians in Damascus knew what was coming. They were not looking forward to this young Pharisee named Saul. We'll find that out in verse 13. Verse 3. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus. That's a very important word, close to Damascus, probably with an eye shot of the walls of Damascus. We know there's walls because Paul's going to be lowered down beyond the wall, probably where he could see the walls. And suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Suddenly, it says, no warning, no preparation, no warm-up. Perhaps the most understated observation in Scripture is that Saul did not expect what was about to happen. Don't miss here that Saul's encounter with the Lord is divinely initiated. He is on his way to kill Christians. And God intercepts him. Acts 26, 13 says that the light that he saw was so overwhelming, it was brighter than the sun. Acts 26 also tells us that it was a blinding light greater than the sun at high noon, and it tells us it was in the middle of the day. Look, all of us, I hope you haven't done this for very long, but all of us have taken the challenge by our big brothers or big sisters or cousin or some friend at school to do the sun stare, right? Look at the sun. How long can you look at the sun? Don't look long. Kids, don't look at the sun. But if you were to glance at the sun, even for a moment, it, is, it stuns and paralyzes your optic nerve. It is so bright. Paul says, this light 
was brighter than the sun. Which is interesting because when John sees the resurrected Christ in Revelation 1, you know what he says? He was brighter than the sun. Glory, doxa in the Greek means brilliance and light. Saul is overwhelmed. He falls to the ground in obvious terror. Then he hears words he would ponder the rest of his life. Why? I mean, just, just play the scene out. Bright light, very loud sound that we'll find out in a minute that the people he was traveling with him heard the sound, but they couldn't discern the words. Like a nuclear flash, he falls to the ground in terror, and then he hears something. Why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? First of all, this voice knows him. He calls him Saul twice. Saul, Saul! This is personal. So it wasn't a universal phenomenon. This was personal. And then this voice says, why are you persecuting me? Paul had been doing lots of persecutings, but the persecuting wasn't against a bright light in his mind. It was against Christians. By the way, this statement, I think, becomes the foundation for everything he's gonna say in the book of Ephesians about us being with him and in him and in solidarity with him. That Christians have a solidarity with Christ that is worth exploring and definitely living out. Paul's problem with Christianity was Jesus himself. That Jesus could be the promised Messiah was out of question for him. Why? Jesus had been crucified on a Roman cross. A Jewish Messiah would never be crucified. That was a contradiction for Paul. By the way, I'm going to mix up saying Saul and Paul all the way through this, so give me some grace, okay? Saul, rather. For Saul, it was the Savior's personal revelation of his risen glory. For all who ever come to Christ, it's an encounter with the truth of the gospel articulated in the word of God, superintended by the Spirit of God. Some years later, Paul was standing before King Agrippa reviewing this scene, what happened on his way to Damascus, and he adds... Uh, on a little bit and tells us something that Luke leaves out in chapter 9 in Acts 26 14 he reveals that Jesus said to him it is hard for you to kick against the goads what does that mean Paul had been willingly suppressing the truth of Christ against his own conscience he had fought misgivings and fought the stirrings of his conscience to maintain his terrorist reputation And you have to think that Stephen's execution was one of those pricking his conscience realities. Now he has been brought to his knees with the humbling and humiliating realization that these Christians were right all along about Jesus. He'd been kicking against the goads, against those restraints. I think it meant he was uneasy with his conscience. And suddenly, Saul suddenly stopped believing Jesus was dead. That must have shaken his head for days and wrecked his thoughts and 
been the most marvelous mystery he'd ever come to know. You understand now why the resurrection is so important in Paul's theology. Hollywood special effects can make us suspicious of the supernatural, but this is real. This happened. I love the fact that he knows his name, just like Daniel and Isaiah have encounters with the Lord. They were afraid of his consuming presence, and the Lord knew their name. Saul must have been sick with confusion. Think about it. His zeal for the honor and glory of God's name had been boundless. He was a warrior in a holy war for the Lord. Who then could this awesome voice be who considered pious, zealous, righteous Paul, Saul, his enemy? Well, the answer must have rocked his world because he announces to him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Immediately, look at verse six. But get up. Where was he? On the ground, on his face. Enter the city, Damascus, and it will be told you what you must do. Acts 26, 17, and 18 tell us that the Lord also told him he was to be his servant and witness to bring the nations from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God. Luke gives us an abbreviated version here in Acts 9. Verse 7. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. We're not convinced that they saw the light, but they heard something happening. Paul would later comment that the men had seen some kind of flash of light, but not to the degree that he did where he fell to the ground. But they didn't understand what was going on. It was just sound. Make no mistake, their perception of the light and the thunderous show, sound showed that Saul's vision was not the subjective conjuring of his own imagination. This was objectively, verifiably real. Verse 8, Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, here's the problem, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, he's blind, they brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Shocked. It may be fair to say that no human has ever been in as deep a state of shock as was Saul here. I love how John Pollock describes this. Time became meaningless. Paul heard the evening trumpet, the next morning's cock crow, the rumble of carts on the paving, Shoekeepers shouting their wares, shopkeepers shouting their wares, the distant murmur of bargainers, the occasional bray of a horse, then the stillness of midday. Paul lay on his bed, wide awake, except for an hour or two of sleep, or knelt long at the bedside and then he lay down again. He did not want human company, only to be alone with the Lord Jesus, as he now called him. He soon forgot hunger thirst his entire personality was in mutation he was being turned inside out as he let jesus light shine in the recesses of his soul end quote i think that more than the more he thought about the darkness of his blindness the more he was broken by the enormity of what he had been doing pollock goes on 
he had imagined that he served God. He had supposed himself climbing into God's favor. He had set up his standards of goodness and compared himself with others and seen that he was good. But now, in contrast with Jesus, whose spirit had invaded him, he knows his purity was a counterfeit of inexpressible, the inexpressible pure. His good deeds, a parody of goodness. He had been mentally and spiritually hostile to God. Though honoring him by mouth, he had been busy in evil. Though punctilious in his religious rites, he had been altogether estranged but for nothing to crawl away as far as he could from the blinding light that was God. Luke now takes us inside Damascus. The camera shifts into these three days of blindness. Verse 10, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. No, that's not the Ananias from chapter five. He died. It's a common name. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He said, here I am, Lord. A very common expression when the Lord says your name. Isaiah said the same thing. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying and he has seen a vision. In a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So we found out that Saul's had this vision, and this vision is given to Ananias. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. What a reputation. How much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. There's his resume. And here he has authority from the chief priest. He knew about the papers to bind all who call on your name. In other words, Lord, I might need to remind you of a few things. We all can understand the apprehension of Ananias, can't we? Notice Paul's reputation. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument vessel, a clay pot of mine, to bear my namesake before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him much how he must suffer for my name's sake. How much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias is obedient, trusting, risk-taking, but he's gentle. Verse 17. So Ananias departed, enters the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother, what a what a statement. This was the first time that Saul is acknowledged as a spiritual sibling of a Christian. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, he obviously knew about the vision, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. That must have been confirming to Saul. Someone else knows. I'm not crazy. Verse 18, and immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. And he regained his sight. And he got up and was baptized. And he took food and was strengthened. Listen, I, have, I read so many speculations about what these scales were and so many attempted medical conditions. We don't know. I love the, the description of Luke. Something like scales. 
He had a film or something over his eyes, and when Ananias lays his hands on him, they fall out. Divinely imposed blinders, or you could say sovereign blinding contact lenses, and they come out. Now, for several days, verse 19, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and verse 20, very important, immediately, immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. The claim that Jesus himself made. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priest? Again, that, that contract that he had that, that wanted warrant of being a part of the posse was in their minds. But Saul, verse 22, kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. All of his Old Testament training is now transformed into Christian doctrine. And we will see that page after page in Ephesians. That's the key to understanding Paul's conversion, proving that Jesus is the Christ. Verse 23, when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. They didn't believe him. We gotta get rid of this guy. Maybe he's being covert. Maybe he is a Trojan horse to come in and infiltrate the temple and then he'll kill us all. But their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so they might put him to death. I mean, imagine you're, you're, you're three days old as a Christian and you're already wanted for death as being a Christian. The very opposite of what he had been enacting against the Christians. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall. That's how we know that Damascus was a walled city. Lowering him down in a large basket. This was the first of many escapes that Saul, Paul, would have. When he came to Jerusalem, we fast forward the 150 miles south, he was trying to associate with the disciples. Christians, I'm a brother. Brother Saul is here. I love this. But they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. Is that hard to imagine? But Barnabas, oh, I love this. Another great man, took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him, the resurrected Christ. He's seen him. And how at Damascus, he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus, proving he's the son of God. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. What a radical transformation that must have been to everyone who heard him. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. Wow! The first two cities he ever finds himself in, they want to kill him for being a Christian, even though he was a Christian killer. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away, his second escape, to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and it continued to increase. 
On the one hand, Saul's conversion is so unique, it's utterly unrepeatable by any person, right? He was affected by a post-resurrection physical appearance of the Lord. On the other hand, though, Paul's conversion contains a pattern for any conversion experience of any believer and any time. Let me just kind of summarize this for us. You look at his conversion, and there are four evidences of genuine conversion. Four evidences of genuine conversion. First, initiation by God. Saul wasn't looking for Jesus. Jesus was looking for Saul. And I know how we sing, I have decided to follow Jesus, but we never decided to follow Jesus until Jesus decided to come and grab us. Initiation by God, that is the case there. And by the way, you know what the first thing he's gonna instruct us about salvation in the book of Ephesians will be? The initiation by God in election, in predestination, and in adoption. So his own conversion experience will play out in verses three and four of the first chapter of Ephesians. Secondly, conviction of sin. Why are you persecuting me? He immediately was, was overwhelmed with guilt. Acts 26 tells us that he was burdened by what he had done. He was kicking against the, the, the goads. His conscience was finally appeased in the gospel. He was convicted of his sin. He knew that what he had been doing was wrong. Thirdly, submission to Christ. He said, get up and go to Damascus. I'm gonna give you specific instant instructions and he took specific instant instructions. He immediately submitted to that resurrected Savior he had seen. And then last is devotion to ministry. He's not even three days old as a Christian and he already goes to the Jewish synagogue and says, he is, he is the son of God he claimed to be. Jesus is the most dramatic fork in the road of every human's life. You submit to him and follow him or you reject him and suffer eternal consequence. Knowing his conversion experience, listen to these words fresh. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Doesn't that make more sense now? The callous, self-righteous, bigoted, murderous Saul was transformed by the risen Savior. Let me say it again. If you were to have a vote in Jerusalem, who is the most unlikely person to ever become a Christian? It would have been Saul. You have friends and family members who you think they're probably beyond the reach of God's grace and favor. Don't give up. Don't stop praying. Remember that God can crash through that 
That's one of the reasons a little while ago I was compelled because of 1 Timothy chapter 3 to pray for our upcoming president. Wouldn't it be wonderful if God saved him? Wouldn't it be wonderful if God saved any lost soul that you know? No one is beyond the reach of God's grace. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ today, what a story for you. You can become a Christian. You can have your sins forgiven. You can stop your rebellion against God and receive his goodness and salvation.